You're listening to God and Comics, the show that assumes when you invite us to a Zoom meeting that we're going to get to see the Flash throwing a supervillain into the Speed Force. On today's show, morality. How do we make moral decisions? What kinds of morality do we see playing out in comics? Why is it that I'm now allowed to teach moral theology to teenagers despite having failed the ethics portion of the general ordination examination? We'll work our way through all those tough questions and more, plus we'll have this or that, our recommendation, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am the chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me uh, is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I am the rector at Church of the Messiah Episcopal Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also, as always, uh, is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. Okay, good to see you, gentlemen. Um, or, or, I guess, hear you for those who are not able to see you um, because podcasts are audio. <laughs> well, you're seeing us, so That's it's true, okay yes. for you I'm to say that. You. That's correct. It's amazing what you guys can't see right now. I, I, I can't even begin to describe it. Um, <laughs> Father Matt is wearing a top hat. Um, Father Kyle is covered head to toe in mud uh, and doing some sort of impression of uh, Woodstock. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing. Well, Father Kyle, if you can, if you can uh, uh, clean yourself up enough for a moment, we would love to hear what uh, you've got for this week's recommendation. I certainly can. So um, usually when we do recommendations here on God and Comics, we tend to recommend a comic book or a graphic novel that we've been reading. I'm going to step off the beaten path today, and I am going to recommend a book about comic books. And that book is Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. This is a, um, a novel about the history of Marvel Comics uh, from its earliest origins as timely comics up through the early 2000s. I think it was written sometime around uh, the late 2000s. Um, this is... An excellently written book. Um, it's captivating. It is a fun read. I think in the of the 400 pages of this book, I read in about three days. Um, I was so taken by it and wanted to know more. But um, as I said, it traces the rise of Marvel Comics from its beginning as timely. It talks about the creation of characters like Submariner and the Human Torch and Captain America. It goes into uh, the golden age of Marvel when Stan Lee and uh, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby were creating all the classic characters that we know, um, like the Hulk and Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. It does a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff of um, what the real environment of the bullpen was like, the Marvel bullpen. Um, it talks about the dysfunction that exists between Stan Lee or existed between Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and all the various fallings out that they had and the attempts at, um, at working together again. 
the book progresses into the 1970s and talks a lot, and this was very enlightening to me, a lot about how um, dysfunctional and drug-fueled the 1970s Marvel Comics creation scene was, especially um, people like Jim Starlin, who was working on Doctor Strange, and Steve Gerber with his creation of Howard the Duck. Um, <laughs> it talks a lot about Howard the Duck. You'll love that if you're a Howard the Duck fan. Um, it also talks about uh, the 1980s, which were kind of like the Jim Shooter years. And um, I learned one fact that, that really unsettled my childhood. Um, I have a collection of the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars toys from Mattel that came out in the um, mid-1980s, around 1984. I came to find out that the whole Marvel Secret Wars comic was only written to back up the toys. They created the toys first and then told Marvel, you need to write a comic around the toys. But the horrible thing is that um, half the characters that were in the comic never made it to the toys. So there's all kinds of little interesting tidbits there. Of course, the book reaches into um, the superstar creator years. It talks a lot about Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. Um, it, it also touches a lot, and this is where I think the book was really valuable. It touches a lot not only on Marvel Comics, but on the comic industry as a whole. So you hear things about DC, you hear things about the creation of Image Comics, and, um, and you hear about Marvel's near collapse in the late 1990s and early 2000s from a lot of um, bad purchases and bad business decisions. And um, the book kind of ends in the place where Marvel has a bit of a resurrection with the whole Marvel Knights series and um, and with uh, the ultimate storylines, ultimate Spider-Man, ultimate X-Men, that kind of thing. So if you're interested in Marvel comics, if you're interested in comic books in general, I think this is an excellent book to read. You get a really good sense of what it's like to work in the comic book world, and you also get a really good peek behind the curtain to see um, how characters are created and what the thinking was in uh, creating a number of very um, prominent storylines in the history of Marvel. So um, I recommend it. Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, H-O-W-E. And you can pick it up wherever you buy your books. That, that, sounds, uh, that sounds amazing. I, I just want to clarify, though, for, for listeners, because you, you'd said it was a novel. So is this a fictionalization or is this a this no, is no. a real like story it, of It's a biography. I should have said that. Novel was a misspeak. Okay. Yeah, it's a biography. I guess the question is 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 it written more like a nonfiction like like uh you know book where they're reporting on things or is it written in a novelized form? Um, it's written predominantly like you, like a biography, um, like, like a nonfiction book. But I mean, there's enough uh, drama in it that it, uh, you know. It's got a compelling story. No, yes. no, that, that was my same question. I, I you know, I, I, I was intrigued by that idea, but um, that it was a novel. No, I, I, I've seen this around and I've been meaning to read it. And I think you've given me the inspiration to pick it up. So. Yeah. Definitely. I wish that they would do the same thing for DC Comics now. Um, there's none like this for DC yet, but hopefully Sean Howell will take up that mantle and write one on DC because I think he would be a great one to do it. 
That'd be cool. Okay, well, uh, to help us to discuss our, our topic today of morality, uh, we have a very special guest joining us on God and Comics for the first time. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kincaid teaches at Neshota House Theological Seminary. She has a, a PhD from uh, Notre Dame, right? I have yep. that right? Uh, and she writes and speaks regularly on topics of moral theology and ethics. Uh, Elizabeth, welcome to God and Comics. Thanks, Father Jonathan. I'm thrilled to be with you all. Um, so let's start by asking you the, the question I always ask people when they come on the first time. Uh, what, if any, background do you have with, uh, with comics? So when I was growing up, we would go every summer to my family's vacation home in Colorado. And in a cabinet up there was a huge stash of my father's 1960s comic books. And so this was our guilty vacation pleasure was going and going through all of those old Avenger comics, Superman, Batman from the early 60s. And that's actually partly how I learned to read was having, you know, kind of as an early reader, having the comics. And it was a big treat because it was on vacation um, and going and looking at those and looking at the pictures. So I have, I won't say I've been like a lifelong comic book fan, but really wonderful formative memories of those being some of the first things I read uh, sitting on the floor in our cabin in Colorado. That, that's really awesome. Um, and I will ask the question that I am certain that uh, Father Kyle and Father Matt now have in their brains as well, which is, do you still have any of these comics? <laughs> no. Huge tragedy. We had a mouse invasion. Uh -huh. And the mice ate them all. I mean, none uh, of them were in very good shape anyway because they were read by, like, all yeah, nine of me and my cool. cousins. So they were all destroyed by the mouse invasion, but they were pretty awesome. Uh, and then I went to Rice, which is, like, the home of nerdiness. So, you know, while I was not a huge comic book reader there, let's just say that comics were kind of in the air and in the water on the Rice University campus. That's that's fun. I, I I can only hope that those mice somehow gain superpowers by eating those comics. <laughs> the mice are all the mice met a quick demise, so I don't yeah. think they, they had long term superpowers at least. Okay, we well. were liberal with the rat poison after that incident. It was. It wasn't radioactive rat poison, was it? Then there might <laughs> no, be hope. No, if it... I think I think I don't think we need to worry about <laughs> mice with super radioactive superpowers roaming around the Rocky Mountains at this point. I, I don't know. At the, at this stage in the game, I'm willing to accept that anything could possibly be the yeah. next thing. Fair <laughs> point. You're right. <laughs> Okay, so um, we're talking about morality today, and eventually we want to get to talking about morality in comics, um, but we figured that uh, it would be a good idea to uh, have somebody who uh, knows something about morality, um, at least in the Christian tradition, to, to talk with us. Um, because clearly we don't. We do not. And it's actually, it's a, a bad um, idea for me to even be involved in this because um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, 
when I took the general ordination examination uh, to become an Episcopal priest, the one subject that I did not pass was ethics. Oh, I've gone to Neshota House instead of Yale. Well, um, and of course now I teach uh, moral theology to 11th graders. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, God has a sense of humor. No, actually what ended up happening honestly was you know the we had somebody in the diocese i came out of the diocese of easton which is the eastern shore of maryland and we had there was a priest in the diocese who had um advanced degree in ethics of some kind and so the bishop had him read my thing that i wrote and to decide whether or not I needed to do something extra. And his conclusion was that they, they gave me the poor mark because they didn't understand it. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> so I gave them too much of a Yale. Right, right. It was, you were too good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, prepared you for the 11th graders. That's right. <laughs> um, so, but let's, let's start with a really simple sounding question. What is morality? That's a great question. And I think what most people think today, when you say, what is morality? Is they assume morality means rules. And I like rules. I'm actually, in my past life, I was a lawyer. So I really like rules and I'm really comfortable. And, but as soon as you start saying, well, morality is just rules, or morality is just following the rules. As the Apostle Paul teaches us, I think very truly, the law produces death in us. And by that, I mean, all of us want to break the rules. So we, our question then about how do we live becomes, well, how do I get around these rules? So the study of morality, I think more properly in both the classical tradition and the Christian tradition needs to be understood as the study of the good life. What makes our life good? And to be able to live a good life, we have to be people who are capable of discerning and doing the good. Um, One of my favorite moral theologians, a Dominican theologian, uh, Father Pink Hairs, talks about this idea as a morality of happiness that basically the question becomes what will make us happy and not happy in sort of just the momentary sense of eating an ice cream cone, but happy in the sense of being people who live fulfilled and flourishing lives. And of course, as Christians, we would say that the fullness of life is the complete enjoying the beatific vision relationship with God. So how are we becoming the people capable of enjoying the relationship, a relationship with God? So that's what morality is. So uh, it's simple. We just figure out what the good is. And and, then we do it. And then we do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, basically. Right. Then we become good. (laughs) And there's no complication to that process whatsoever. No, no, we all we all just instantly know it. I mean, anybody who has it, who's had a who's had a toddler. No, you know, sees the reality of how bad we are at both knowing and doing the good. Well, then. Uh, what would you say are some of the key things that are necessary for us to consider if we're trying to evaluate the, the morality of a particular action? Mm. Well, I think the real question in evaluating the, mora- the morality of a particular action 
is what type of being am I? And what does this action do to me? How is this action making me more the type of person God created me to be? Um, And so a really important insight in moral theology, I think, that Pope John Paul II articulates really well in Veritatis Splendor is the fact that our acts make us who we are. Um, we, we sort of, we can easily get to this place where we kind of say, well, I'm not that type of person. Like when, you know, when we do something bad, I, well, I'm not that type of person. He's not that type of person, but we become the people who we ultimately are because of a series of actions that we engage with our actions form and change us. So the question is kind of what type of being am I? What type of being am I supposed to become? And how is this action either moving me towards that or moving me away from that? Um, One of the examples I love to use because it is a constant temptation in my life is gossip. I love like celebrity gossip. I love People Magazine. I love kind of being in the know. But if I'm a type of being who is designed for relationship with the loving God, and I'm the type, then how can I have a relationship with a loving God if I can't love people around me? And how can I love people around me if I'm engaging in actions that are using them for sort of my own intellectual stimulation by figuring out, you know, something kind of scandalous or edgy about them? And so I think this is deep down how we evaluate the actions. It's not consequentialism. It's not saying, well, this action creates something good. We have to ask that as well. But it's like, what is this action doing to me? So is that, I mean, is that something that you think we can see relatively clearly or do we have to kind of, are there things that we have to do to kind of get us in the frame of mind where we can see those things clearly? So I think there's a range. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the fact that we all have sort of these basic instincts. This is what he relates to the natural law that orient us to the good. So we can all say, most of us, not all of us, um, it is good for me to eat food to sustain my body. It is That is a good and appropriate thing for me to do. We could all say, most of us, it is good for me to take care of my family. I have, this is sort of part of me as a human being is caring for my children or caring or having a sense of duty to my parents or caring for my spouse. Um, But the reality of sin is that the farther we sort of move along, the harder this gets to discern by ourselves, the more our own selfish desires and misunderstanding of what makes us happy gets in the way of actually seeing what the good is. So here's an example. We were talking a lot about poverty in one of my classes right now. And so it is on an intellectual level. I can say that my happiness and sort of my flourishing depends on being part of a flourishing community. Um, I'm a social being. We all are social beings. But if I am not thinking about the needs of the poor, if I'm not engaging with them, I don't have this capacity to sort of naturally say, well, I have a, it is a morally good thing for me to give to the poor, to contribute to their flourishing. And that also contributes to my flourishing. Um, My own selfish desires for uh, my, my big, one of my big vices is expensive coffee. 
uh, get in the way and make me lose my awareness of like what actually is the good. And of course, even if you know the good, you don't always do it. I mean, I am a moral theologian and and I spend all day talking about caring for the poor, but I still went out and bought a nice cappuccino this afternoon. (laughs) Well, this is Romans seven, right? Yes. I know the good that I should do, but I don't do it. And the good that are the things that I don't want to do are the things that I do. Precisely. I think, I mean, Paul is a great moral psychologist. (laughs) My theory is actually most theologians, moral theologians and me include a really want to write on the book of Romans. And we just kind of circle around Romans all the time. But yes, it's a good place to be. I'm with you. It's uh, it's always it's always been my my favorite uh, book of the Bible. And uh, now I know why, because apparently I was destined to teach moral theology. You were right there. <laughs> I mean, you've got you've got it all. You've got Romans 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so and actually, I would say, you know, one of the things that that is the, the the almost the first thing that 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 I've found that I had to do to to get my students to pay attention to it is something you've you've already pointed to which is that morality is about happiness um which is actually true you know even if the morality that you are pursuing is not what we would consider to be a christian morality if any morality is about happiness, you pursue it because you think it will make you happy. Exactly. Um, the, the, the difference being that Christian morality actually will in a universal, long-term, right. eternal sense. Right. Yep. Um, but We were just reading these great sermons by St. John Chrysostom, and he's talking about Lazarus, uh, the poor man, and the, the rich man. And he says, look, the rich man's actually more miserable. Like, the rich man thinks all these riches and his lecture are going to make them happy, but it's, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Lazarus is miserable in the moment, but he's ultimately much happier than the rich man. He's like, the rich man isn't even happy in this life. Where then, uh, and I'll, I'll open this up here in a second, because um, I'm sure you guys have some things you want to bring into this, but where then does um, something like virtue or vice come into the right. equation? So I guess one thing I one really important thing that I feel like I left out oh, sure. is when I say we're focused on happiness, I don't want to give up on the law. Mm-hmm. The reason, and this is sort of the, I guess the a one traditional Christian and theory of moral theology is that the reason we have the law is that we can't, since we can't discern the good well, and we don't know how to do it, we need the law to orient us to the good. We need, um, the Decalogue, we need Jesus saying, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, because we can't, even though this is what makes us happy, and we can sort of have these inchoate senses of making us happy, we can't get there on our own intellectually, and we definitely can't get to love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. intellectually. So I just want to make sure that I don't say yeah. that this doesn't give up the law, but it sort of positions the law. And I think this is where Jesus is also getting us with the is moving us with the beatitudes. Mm-hmm. We have to look beyond just Absolutely. the law. And that's that's so, a great caveat to make. Thank you. Well, I you know I, I always worry about this in my classes too. As I get, I think this idea of morality of happiness is so different from the way we are all trained to think about morality mm-hmm. that. We can give up on the law as opposed to saying, no, the law is there to orient and guide us. And again, this Paul's very clear on this too, I think. Um, so virtue and vice. 
The idea of virtue specifically is that we have, just as we have physical capacities in our bodies, we can have capacities in our soul. And so that the more we perform these good actions, it actually changes I said it changes who we are. And the more we perform the good actions, the more likely we are to be able to do things well in a different situation. So the more, I mean, the easiest one is temp, this idea of the virtue of temperance, that the more I learn to control my bodily desires, the more likely I am to, go, to be able to keep doing that in an appropriate way. And part of the point about virtues is it doesn't always, exercising the virtue isn't always going to look exactly the same way in every situation. I I will confess to you fathers, I have not had the most self-denying Lent this year. Um, But I actually feel like maybe given the year we've had, that actually is not inappropriate. That does not mean that I've given up on the virtue of temperance. It's just being expressed somewhat differently this year. But even assuming that wasn't the case, we might say, well, look, the virtue of temperance would point us towards a a time of more than normal self-denial. But if you continue that to Easter and you don't stop to celebrate, um, you're actually not living out the virtues perfectly. It's acting in the right way, in a way appropriate to that instance. And so the point, and this is from, from Aristotle, is that the more you do that, the better you are able to do it the next time. Just like, I mean, one of the things I've been working on for years, my marriage is closing all the doors in the, in all the cabinet doors in the kitchen. And so, you know, the more I do that, the more ideally I'll be able to keep doing it. Uh, that's, that's one that I need to work on. Maybe that's a, <laughs> a big struggle. There you go. The, the deacon at Mass this Sunday began, the, he was preaching this week, and he began the homily with, welcome everyone to the 13th month of Lent. Yeah, yes, precisely. <laughs> I think we all feel that way. Well, um, th- there's a, a, a number of other things that, that I could bring up, but I, I just want to open it up to Father Matt and Father Kyle. Do you guys want to bring anything up in this sort of general sense of morality before we, uh, before we dive into comics? No, the, the only comment I would make would backing up to the, the issue of the law and how um, how the law functions in the realm of morality. Um, a lot of uh, Lutheran theologians have described the law as a kind of playpen for us, mm-hmm. um, that life is good with inside the playpen, uh, but it's when we get outside of it that life goes badly for us. Right. But there's a lot of room for creativity in there. There's mm-hmm. a lot of room for movement. And I think you see that reflected in, uh, in you know, the Pentateuch and the Torah, where there's the giving of the commandments in Exodus 20, but then what comes afterwards are the case laws. Yes. And the case laws are not meant to necessarily be the be all and end all, but they're meant to sort of address particular situations with the idea that uh, godly wisdom will then be able to pick up on what's being said there and apply it to circumstances of a similar nature. So there's no like concrete, this is the only way to do it, but perhaps there's some room for, for um, learning, you know, through wisdom, how to I think, address I think situations. Yes, I, th- I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, one of my favorite instances is 
as we look at discussions of money and property throughout the Bible. Um, you know, we do have the evangelical councils, the councils of perfection, which is giving up everything. But we don't see this expected of everybody in the same way. I mean, we have the, the church in Jerusalem where, object, where stuff is hold, held in common. We have the rich young ruler who Jesus says, give up everything you have and follow me. We have in the um, Old Testament law, the principle of not gleaning the corners of your field. And so we have all these different instantiations of kind of engagement with property. But the real underlying message is always this is not yours. This is God's. Yeah. Use this to serve God. But it, it shows up at different places and different times as sort of what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. It makes me think, uh, Father Kyle, that the image you just had of the playpen makes me think of uh, Chesterton talking about orthodoxy as being the the fence you know if you a group of children on a island with a steep cliff mm -hmm. and if you don't have a fence around it they huddle in the center scared because they could fall off but you you put a fence around it and now they can actually play because they're safe there right. Right. right yeah yeah good image and actually father pink hairs in his discussion of this talks about um it gives the example of a jazz pianist and said that you have to learn the scales before you can play jazz, that you need this sort of musical structure before you know how to improvise. Yeah, I mean, I, tell me if you think this is overblowing it, but I think it wouldn't be too much to say, especially because if you think of Jesus giving the love command as the sort of summary of the law, you could literally boil the entire morality of the Bible. It could just be the word love on a piece of paper and that could be the whole thing the problem is we don't we don't know what that means we don't understand what love is mm -hmm. and so yeah. that's why we need all the other words that's why we need all the other pieces yeah. of paper yeah our, you know as curved in human beings um sinfully curved in human beings we always interpret that love command in a curved in sinful way so love is whatever serves me best in any given moment mm -hmm. right um but what the one thing that the law does for us the decalogue does for us is it defines what love looks like in a way that is not self-centered in a way that actually looks out toward god and then looks out toward my neighbor right in a vertical and horizontal way um, love is is defined for us and uh, we need that because we're always going to default to the self-centered absolutely and we're bad at it we don't choose things that are actually going to make us happy it's just things we think are going to make us happy yeah yeah going back to your illustration of the rich man right the rich right. man's unhappy because he thinks that the wealth is what's going to ultimately give him his happiness mm -hmm. and yet mm -hmm. it doesn't and that's true today. I mean, how many Absolutely. people pursue uh, wealth or status or fame or power or any of the number of idols that we set up in our lives? And they think these things will ultimately be fulfilling and they prove to be empty. They're not the things that right. give life. Right. Guys, what what if what if we're all just in a big rom-com and like. We're like, you know, like God's the one we're supposed to be with at the end of it. But we're like with the other person who's like not cool at all. And the audience can see it, but like we can't see it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an, it's an odd, uh, odd picture, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I mean, we are the the bride of Christ, right? So, right, we are. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I said yesterday. Know, my favorite children's story Bible is the Jesus Storybook Bible, mm-hmm. which I would highly recommend. And the story of Leah is told exactly in that way. Is that the whole focus is like, well, Jacob doesn't love her; he loves Rachel. Yeah. But God loves her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yesterday I said, I preached on the Decalogue yesterday in the lectionary cycle, and um, one of the things I said in the sermon was that God was not into polyamorous relationships, <laughs> and uh, and yet that's what we often think, right, <laughs> Using going to your rom-com illustration. <laughs> oh, man. Are there polyamorous rom-coms now? I don't... I don't know. Do Who I want to know? Probably not. It's a family show. I, I'm sure it's coming. Yeah. Wow, I, I preached on the Ten Commandments too, but I didn't get into polyamory. You're braver than I am. Jeez. Sometimes you got to push on it. Good. Good for you. Um, okay. So, well, let let's maybe let's uh, get into some some comic ideas here, right? Because like obviously, there's I mean, anywhere you have stories, you're gonna have. Um, morality and um, moral examples, some of which are good, some of which are, are bad. Um, so we thought we would we'd bring up uh, some of our favorites. Trying to think of what are some um, famous um, moral dilemmas in, in, in the history of uh, comic books, and ones that people will know, so it's not like some obscure story from somewhere. And I think probably the character that, and one of the reasons why I love him as a character so much, who wrestles with with sort of his moral responsibility, you know, the most, is uh, is Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Um, and so Spider-Man's, uh, you know, kind of life motto that he learned from his late uncle ben was the was the whole idea that with great power comes great responsibility and um i think i think most of our listeners uh, will know the story about how peter parker becomes spider-man how he use begins to use his power for the common good um and uh, in it is, is contained like sort of an ethical dilemma so he has these great powers so he starts using these powers to make money. And one might think like, okay, why not, right? Uh, he has these great skills, why not use them? And he's like, you know, a pro wrestler or something like that. Um, what he ends up, what ends up happening is that um, he hears the, uh, 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 the, the guy who runs these wrestling matches getting kind of uh, shaken down by a, by a crook. And, uh, and the guy runs off with his money and he says, stop him, stop him. And he just, you know, says, not my problem. Mm. And lets the guy run, run away. Well, um, that, that's the guy that, that ends up, um, murdering uncle Ben, uh, that, that night, you know, and, and, and that's it. He's like, I, I, I had him and I, and I, and I let him get away. And then he remembers, of course, what Uncle Ben always told him, with great power comes great responsibility. So he, he kind of has this lifelong sort of like, I have these powers and I have a moral responsibility at all times to use 
these powers to defend the innocent, you know, fight crime. I have to use them for good. One could ask, like, well, how far does that go? You know, so like, okay, the guy runs right by him. He has to stop him, right? Um, but um, he ends up making his whole life like a sacrifice, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, if, if you've seen the movies, for instance, they dramatize this, you know, he, he can't have a relationship with the, right. with the woman that he loves because it would be unsafe. He, you know, he has to be Spider-Man. And there's no room in his life for love. You know, and he wrestles with this all the time, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Then he wrestles with it on another level, too, later. So there was one story where uh, his Aunt May is, is very sick, and, and now he's responsible for her. Now it, it, the question becomes, well, how is it right for me to go out fighting crime? Right. Putting myself in danger if I have this elderly aunt that's depending on me. Mm -hmm. um, but he still needs to make money. And the only way he makes money at the moment is by taking pictures of himself as Spider-Man. So he's, he's dressed <laughs> as Spider-Man and he's trying to get, you know, shots of himself. And uh, he gets attacked by his worst nemeses. They've banded together to try to get him. And he has to run away. Mm. And, and he's portrayed in the media look spider-man's a coward and everywhere he goes you know people are spider-man what what a wimp my kid sister could beat him up and you know he, <laughs> he runs away when he's attacked so you know that that's the opposite he wrestles with whether or not he can do nothing with these powers and whether or not he can do anything with these powers because he has people in his life that depends on him depend on him so i, I wonder what, what do you make of that maxim with great power comes mm. great responsibility? And, you know, where is the line? Does he just continue giving, 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 giving? And, 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 and what about his, his responsibility to himself or mm -hmm. his, his, his immediate family? Well, I think, I mean, if you want to take the maxim with great power comes great responsibility, um, that seems to be... I mean, I, th I think our moral intuition is that that makes sense, right? Like the more you've been given, the more something is expected of you. And if we're talking about morality in these terms of who are you becoming and the foundational question is, well, who are you and who are you supposed to be? It's funny. I was actually thinking about Spider-Man when I was trying to think about that in connection to God and comics, um, this sense that like, well, there are things that Spider-Man, because he has these secret power, these superpowers, can do that no one else can do. And for him to act like they're not there, I mean, if, if he's pursuing the moral life, then he needs to be, and it sounds cheesy, but the best Spider-Man he can be. Um, that's a part of who, that becomes a part of who he is. And to just sort of cut that off isn't actually pursuing flourishing. Um and this is, look, we all, this is the same with all of us. I mean, wouldn't we say that somebody who has great wealth has more response, I mean, has a responsibility to use that great wealth well, or somebody who's a very charismatic person, there's more responsibility on that person to use that for good than say someone who isn't. Um, so I, th I think we, we see this sort of the, the development of the virtuous life is aligned with who each person is and like how do they become 
the best they can be. Where our 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 morality morality doesn't mean we become clones. Um, to the point about the family, I think that's a really interesting question. I will say that Aquinas says Saint Thomas Aquinas. I think it's when he's talking about the virtue of justice does differentiate between he, he has a sense that you owe first to the people who are nearest to you. And by that, he means family and then neighbors. So again, I think we, we can see this, like it's not enough. We would never say, Oh, a person who is giving all this money away to care for people on the other side of the world, but is a total jerk to that person's family is like a moral person. I mean, we can all sort of sense that. So yes, I mean, does, does Peter Parker have a higher duty to aunt M Probably. I mean, it doesn't extend all the way up to like letting someone else die, perhaps. But th there is this sense that if we're going to say that grace completes nature, like our natural ties aren't done away with. They are um, transformed. But there is still a, a, a duty and a responsibility there that we don't just automatically walk away from. Um and like, how do we spend our lives? What Spider-Man doesn't have, I don't think, that we as Christians have is not only the sort of the cultivation of the, the cardinal virtues, these natural virtues that are accessible to everyone, but the gift of the infused virtues, the gift of the Holy Spirit of God's faith, hope, and love within us. And at the end of the day, that's what has to keep us, that's what keeps us sort of running is the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out. And so I think that when we think about these heroic figures, um, we're always sort of assuming that they're gutting it out on their own. And that's something that we don't have to do because of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Could, could you say, though, um, you know, going, going along with this idea of the, the person... Um, flourishes by by becoming more who they are right they pursue mm -hmm. you know so uh, we don't want so spider it wouldn't be right for spider-man to just pretend he wasn't spider-man right? right other than in you know secret identities which that's a whole other episode that, we, that mm -hmm. we've already done <laughs> a whole other ethical question a whole really. other ethical question yeah. yeah actually but so um but wouldn't we also say that it's true that choosing not to act mm -hmm. is itself a moral choice? And so, like, to go back to the, the example that you gave, that, you know, like a wealthy person has a greater responsibility in some ways than a person who doesn't have wealth, um, which I think is true and, and in some ways even self-evident. But aren't there also times where a wealthy person throwing their money into something because they care about it can also really upset the apple cart, right? If they do it in, in a way where they're just, I'm just going to overwhelm this situation with, mm -hmm. with cash. Um, and so sometimes the better choice might be restraint. So we talk about this when we talk about this idea called the unity of the virtues, which are, we, we have all these sort of you know, habits of the soul, the virtues, but 
they don't operate by themselves. Like you're not just a just person. You have to be a just and a prudent person. And so the idea of the virtue of prudence is that it's the virtue of the intellect that directs us in what is the right thing to do in this specific situation. So, you know, while I'm sure all of us operating nonprofits would love to have the problem of the wealthy person who just wants to give and give and give without restraint. Um, that And this goes back to the Peter Parker example too. I mean, Part of what he needs to do, and I think this is part of kind of the arc of his story, is to cultivate the virtue of prudence, not just the virtue of justice, and determining what is the right way to act in this specific situation, given all the responsibilities, both the responsibilities I have because of my great power, but also the responsibilities I have as a, as a person, and my responsibilities to A&M or to... Um, Mary Jane, or, you know, I mean, those don't go away. I think the responsibilities don't go away. He owes different things, different people to be the actions of the virtue of justice. But if you're not acting justly in accordance with prudence, like you said, Father Jonathan, that doesn't do anybody any good. I think, uh, although, you know, one one can't help but admire Spider-Man, and we all enjoy reading his exploits, but... um... I think sometimes he feels responsible um, for things that maybe are not immediately his responsibility, mm, mm-hmm. but he's driven by by a sense of guilt for things that he's failed to do in the past. He had the power to stop that guy running down the hallway that had stolen the money, and he could have very easily done that. Does he have the responsibility to track down every supervillain in New York City to put a stop to their, you know, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, there's the Fantastic Four, there's Daredevil, there's the Avengers, there's plenty of other people that can handle this. He's, mm-hmm. But uh, his, his sense of responsibility, um, and I think he put it well, um, he needs to temper that with prudence. You know, that, that his, his sense of responsibility overflows all reasonable bounds sometimes um, at, to the point where he feels guilty when maybe he has no reason to feel guilty. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've also made the argument for a number of years now that I think the thing that Peter Parker needs more than anything is absolution. Mm-hmm. He needs to be forgiven because that yeah. until he is forgiven – he can't be set free to mm-hmm. begin to do anything because that that um, that sense of guilt is crippling to him. And by the way, the new storyline, I think, is drawing into that deeply uh, in the current issues of Spider-Man. There's a lot of talk about forgiveness and and uh, seeking forgiveness. All right. Well, we've we've sorted one out. Um, I think this was, this was a good therapy session for Peter Parker. I think he made a real breakthrough here. Um but let's uh, let's hear um, Father Kyle's, and and maybe we'll we'll explore the morality of the situation he's going to mention a little bit, and then I'll throw a monkey wrench into it by uh, putting up mine uh, next to it. All right, so, sounds good. Go ahead. So my situation is uh, has to do with Batman. Um, there was a, a, a famous storyline that occurred in the late 1980s. It was actually a kind of uh, two storylines that converged together. 
um, in which Batman's enemy, the Joker, who had always been and has always been the thorn in Batman's side, um, committed two really heinous acts, which uh, pushed the Joker beyond the sort of um, clownish figure that he once was. One thing that he did is he shot Barbara Gordon, who was uh, Batgirl, in uh, in the stomach so that she became paralyzed because the bullet hit her spine. So he took her out of commission. And then very shortly after that, he hatched a plan in which he um, had acquired a nuclear weapon and was going to sell the nuclear weapon to Iran. Mm. And um, in the midst of it, Robin, the second Robin, Jason Todd, um, was searching for his mother. His mother had connections to the Joker. He ended up coming across the Joker alone without Batman, and the Joker um, mercilessly beat him and then uh, left him in a room with a bomb so that he died. The bomb exploded and he died. So we've got Barbara Gordon shot and paralyzed. We have uh, Jason Todd Robin now dead. Batman, you know, comes upon the remains of Robin. He hears from Robin's mother, who is in the process of dying as well, that Joker was the one who did this. And of course, Batman, who generally holds to a position that he will not kill, um, decides that enough is enough. And he is going to um, deal out final vengeance to the Joker, mm -hmm. that, that he sees no alternative now except to kill Joker so that Joker can't do this kind of thing again. The monkey wrench in all of this, though, is that while Batman is in the process of doing that, the Ayatollah promotes Joker to the UN ambassador for Iran. <laughs> and, uh, and consequently, when Batman goes to seek out the Joker to kill him, he is now a UN official. And Batman is warned by both Superman and the government, uh, the government agent who comes to speak to him, that... Um, that if you dare to do anything to Joker at this point, it's going to create an international incident. Mm. So yeah. now he's boxed into this quandary because he desperately wants to take Joker out. But at the same time, if he does it, he risks something much greater befalling the world because this is the late 1980s, of course, and there's tension between Iran and the U.S. anyway. Um, well, I guess that's the same as 2020, isn't it? Yeah. But, <laughs> um, in 2021. But... Uh, but we've got all this happening. So eventually what does happen in the storyline is that uh, Batman goes ahead and pursues the Joker. And the two get into a scuffle. There's gunfire exchange. And um, the helicopter they're in goes down. And Batman has to escape the helicopter. The Joker dies. He doesn't do anything. Well, seemingly dies because he goes down in the helicopter. But Batman doesn't do anything. So all that's to say he was faced with this great choice, right? Um, you've got the vengeance issue there, mm -hmm. whether vengeance is appropriate for a single right. human being to deal. Then, of course, you've got the issue of, um, of, of this conflict and potential world explosion that's going to happen if he mm -hmm. pursues this individual. So, I mean, I'm with you. I think the big issue is the sense of vengeance. I mean, the, the Christian moral tradition is very clear that... Vengeance is the Lord's. And um, 
that there are, I mean, this is going back to our Romans discussion, you know, there are, there are authorities that God has given to bear the sword who are to act, but they're to act out of the pursuit of justice, not out of personal vengeance. I mean, I guess we could argue that, I mean, maybe Gotham city is so corrupt that Batman has to, is acting kind of as an officer of the law, but I think we all get pretty nervous about vigilanteism. Um, so I think where Batman is, the, the moral flaw here is that he is not, um, he, he's letting his passions overcome his practice of the virtue of prudence and his desire for vengeance, um, overcome the care and commitment to justice because he's not the right, he's not the one to, to, and he would know that, like you said, I mean, he would know that in his more kind of calm and rational moments and to care for the common good. And this isn't just, I, I don't think we're being consequentialist by saying, well, he shouldn't, he shouldn't take the Joker out just so the Joker doesn't, you know, lead the world in nuclear warfare. We're saying he's doing something wrong and it's opposed to the common good. Hmm. Yeah, I think that the vengeance issue is something that plays a lot into a lot of comic books mm -hmm. um, because pretty much every hero in some way is acting as a vigilante because very few of them have any sort of, um, to quote the old Batman 1966 show, he's not a duly deputized agent of the law, right? <laughs> Very few of them hold any kind of status like that. You look at the things Daredevil does or, or um, the Punisher, mm -hmm. um, you know, these characters are definitely acting as vigilantes. Right. Maybe and Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. In some well, senses. Captain America is the captain. Right. Exactly. I mean, he might be. You could argue he is more duly deputized. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think I, I think there's kind of a line, though. I mean, you know, there's someone like Batman who's out there like doing detective work. Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, uh, tracking down the criminals and, and, right. and, and, you know, punishing them. And, but then, you know, if, 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 if someone's, if Spider-Man or, you know, Superman is, happens by a, a bank robbery, is it vigilantism to jump in and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and give a hand to the, to the people who are being robbed? Uh, it's kind of a, a gray area there. Right. I mean, one might ask, uh, uh, say that they're acting more heroically than 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 uh, participating in vigilantism. Mm -hmm. um, they're not interfering in a police investigation. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a a difficult question. Right. What's our responsibility as a citizen? Yeah. And kind of our neighbor, and then I mean, I but I think you know, going and hunting down someone. And maybe this gets back to Peter Parker, too. You know, I mean, he's putting too much responsibility on himself. There's a big gap between stopping the guy who's running away with the money and, like, hunting down every super criminal in New York. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, yeah. there's a thin line here, too, because, um, there, you know, there are mechanisms by which these characters become kind of... Um, legitimate actors mm -hmm. um you know think i'm just thinking about like the justice league you know in many ways is considered a legitimate actor right as a as a as a group or the avengers right. at certain points in their history at least um have been considered that um but then when one of these guys goes off to do something on their own um 
what does that mean? But let, maybe this would be a good time for me to throw, uh, throw mine uh, into the ring. So the, the example I wanted to use, and before I do, let me just say again on the podcast, as I have before, I still have not seen Wonder Woman 84. I oh, want to see that. Wonder Woman 84. I am not willing to pay $20 to rent uh. Wonder Woman 84. But uh, please do not spoil it for me, those of you who have seen it, because I, 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 I have heard enough through the air to think that there may be some correlation to uh, what I'm going to bring up. But, Probably is. Um, what I wanted to bring up is... Uh, a storyline um, that that happened that led into the uh, Infinite Crisis event uh, in DC. Um, this is a storyline that was called Sacrifice that starts out in Superman, uh, but uh, ends up in in Wonder Woman. What happened is you have this this guy Maxwell Lord who is, um, has a, a wonderful combination of things. He, he is uh, wealthy, ruthless, has psionic powers, whatever the heck that means, um, and uh, hates uh, superheroes and you know, wants, to, wants to really sort of mess things up, um, not just to, to um, you know, cause, you know, enrich himself, but to actually like cause real pain to the world and to the reputations of people. And so he, he does several terrible things, including um, murdering uh, Ted Cord, uh, the Blue Beetle. But he, he, um, he also manages to basically take over part of Superman's mind and uses this power to basically convince Superman at various points that his friends and people he cares about are under attack. And that then prompts Superman to actually harm people that he cares about <laughs> because he's, he's hallucinating and he thinks right. that they're other people. Um, <clears throat> and, and he begins to do great damage without even realizing that he's doing it. And Wonder Woman goes to try to stop him um, and try to stop Maxwell, actually goes to try to stop Maxwell Lord. Um, and uh, in the process, Superman thinks that she's a bad guy because Lord does this. And so they have this kind of terrible fight and um, uh, she ends up cutting him with her tiara, <laughs> which, which, which kind of, snaps him out of it at least momentarily but basically and all of this stuff is happening on television too by the way Maxwell Lord mm. manages to like get this out to the world so anyhow he is he's got this grip on Superman which is kind of like having a nuclear weapon maybe even worse in some ways right um, she is trying to talk him out of it and he won't be talked out of it she's trying to figure out a way to disarm the situation, there doesn't seem to be one. Finally, she puts the lasso of truth on Maxwell mm. Lord, which of course means that he is compelled at that point to say what is true. Um, and, uh, and she asks him in this moment, is there any way, short of killing you, is there any way to stop this situation, to get you to stop? 
And he says, no, the only way is to kill me. At which point, she snaps his neck. Mm. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. On live television. <laughs> um, which leads to the dissolution for a time of the Justice League and all of the things that kind of go into Infinite Crisis. But I think it's an interesting example in, in right along next to the one that Kyle gives because... It is another situation where there is a, 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 the idea to kill, and actually she ends up going through with it. Right. right. Um, but it's a and it's it's a very quickly made decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet, in some ways, for her, it's much less. It is actually, in some ways, more rational. I think. Right. Because it's it's she's decided this is the only thing that I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever it does to my reputation, whatever else happens, it's the only, it's kind of like the only way through. Right. Um, but, uh, but, you know, causes a lot of problems and I think raises um, the other question that, that we haven't quite gotten to with the, with the Batman revenge example yet, which is, can you do something that is evil because there's a greater good that you want to bring out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think part of the question with with the Wonder Woman example is, and I was thinking about this with the Batman example too. I mean, are we how are Wasians? I mean, do we are comic books how are Wasian? Are we going to say that killing is always murder, mm-hmm. or may is there space for licit killing? such as in self-defense. And I would think with the Wonder Woman, or or the defense of others, right? You know, I mean, I would think with the Wonder Woman example, it actually provides kind of a paradigmatic example of someone reacting proportionally. That, I mean, she wants to give him every way to sort of stop doing this. I mean, she gives, it sounds like she has lots of truth on, I mean, is there any way we can get you to stop? And he says no. And so she kills him. And so is that a licit, I mean, it's not a judicial killing, but is it a licit killing because she's acting to uh, protect herself and others? And so I think that's, that's a, I mean, a hot question in moral theology now. Is I Wonder Woman's not a Christian, but um, she's an Amazon. But what is the um, what what is sort of the appropriate the limit of appropriate actions in defense of self and others? But she clearly is. I mean, she clearly doesn't want to kill him. Like she would like it's it's definitely proportionate. Yeah, I mean, she's doing the minimum amount that she can to get him that inflicting the minimum amount of violence she can to get him to stop in that instance. Well, my question would be, and and I, I, I've never read this story, I, that, that's the, it, but I might have to because this is really interesting. <laughs> it's a great, Greg Rucka is the, the one who wrote it. Yeah. So she has him restrained at the moment, though, right? She's mm-hmm. got him. He's tied up with the lasso. Where is he going to, like, couldn't she have brought him to be detained by the law and imprisoned and put on trial and everything? I mean, he... He's he's telling her his intention, but at that moment, does he have the power to continue to go through with it, or is it? 
He, um, he does, uh, yeah. I mean, she could, I mean, I guess, I don't, you know, I don't know. I guess they could have <laughs> explored, like, what happens if they sedate him or something. I'm not I'm not really sure what they could do, but like because he has Superman under his mind exactly. control. Exactly. So and he and he even in the moment says that he's willing to like let Superman go for now, but but the possibility will always exist that any second he could turn it back on again and 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 have Superman creating havoc once more. Um, and mm. it's, it becomes this kind of terror situation, right? Like you'll never know when I'm going to. So I guess the other the other thing is Superman could have like gone away somewhere or something. I suppose. Um, but couldn't Superman come? I mean, he's Superman. Can he come back? You know, I mean, like. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 um. It's it's complicated. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll say you know Superman is definitely horrified by this especially witnessing it happening mm -hmm. um right in front of his face so you know this is this is part of the issue there is that because he has such a strict moral code about this and batman too you know even though batman had been right up against the brink of it with joker before he he has ultimately never gone over the line um mm. exactly yeah, <laughs> it's I think a he's, it's a he's, thin line, but it's a thin line. He's pushed he off a clerk's line a little mm -hmm. bit. <laughs> Batman's like, I will beat you within an inch of your life, but I won't actually <laughs> take right. that last inch. That's right. <laughs> but well, I, I always thought it was odd, but with with Batman too, you know, he'll he won't use a gun, you know, but he'll throw explosives at people. Right. <laughs> Right. 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 I mean, does that your intention? You're just—it's just a little more diffused. I mean, the intent is still there. Yes. Yes. Or you know, or um, yeah. I, I mean, I I think that one of the reasons why Batman doesn't want to use a gun is because it's it's more it's more personal than it is ethical in some ways because it's like his parents were murdered with a gun. Right. So he has this almost psychological aversion to, to guns um yeah I, you know i i wondered i mean because you know he'll he uses all kinds of other weapons uh it's it's just you know although that, he, that, that in the comic code you know didn't allow batman to carry a gun <laughs> yeah yeah because originally he did originally he did have a gun and he did shoot some people um <laughs> in the early issues of detective comics right. and then and then they did away with that but there's a you know there's a lot of gray areas in the early superman and batman comics because both of them have a tendency to um to just let people die rather than seek to bring people to justice they deal out justice by allowing somebody to die um and that shifts of course with the comics code stuff and uh you know seeking to not send kids down the wrong path. <laughs> um, Heroes became more uh, straightforwardly heroic, less morally ambiguous, until maybe the 80s where they they leaned hard into the moral ambiguity of the couple characters. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if we have uh, thoroughly adjudicated the... Um, morality of uh of batman or or wonder woman at this point um but we've certainly raised some good interesting questions 
perhaps we'll we'll get to explore some of this again um, in a future episode. I, I, I want to uh, know what some of you all think, so I hope that you all will uh, hit us up on uh, social media. Social media, it's what plants crave. Um, so, uh, you know, talk to us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at God and Comics. Uh, or check us out on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash godandcomics. You can join us on Slack as soon as I figure out what in the world Slack is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, I would like us to uh, move into our final segment, This and Every Time Out, This or That. This or that, this or that. Calling everybody, let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man, this or that. Spider-Man or Superman, this or that. Boxes or briefs, this or that. DVD or VHS, this or that. Dungeons or Dragons, this and that. Moses or Elijah, this or that. This or that. Um, so, uh, Elizabeth, w would you be willing to join us for a game of this or that? So happy to. Okay, so, um, the way this works is, um, it's... It's a series of, of, of either ors questions, right? Coke or Pepsi, uh, you know. Um, uh, now all I can think of is the ones from the little theme song, Batman or Iron Man. Um, and you uh, just respond with uh, whatever is in your heart at that moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, back it up if you want to or not. Uh, and then uh, I'm the, the questioner this time, so I will assign a point value uh, to your answer, which is entirely arbitrary. Um, and then at the end, a winner will be declared through uh, some form of alchemy, I think. Perfect. Good. Through your psionic powers. Through my psionic <laughs> powers. The only way to stop me is to kill me. All right. So... Um, Let's uh, let's start with um, Father Kyle. Father Kyle, Punky Brewster, or Saved by the Bell, both of which are getting reboots. This is hilarious. You must have psionic powers. We just watched the first episode of Punky Brewster again, like an hour really? ago. Really, like the original one? Like the original one nice. with my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I what's your daughter think? She liked it. We're going to start watching it again. But um, so my answer is Punky Brewster. I never watched Saved by the Bell, believe it or not. Really? Um, that's one show I'm unfamiliar with. My wife knows it well, but not me. Yeah. So you might have been yeah. just a, like just a little bit too old for Saved by the Bell. Because yeah. it was like it, it. The weird thing about that show is it's it was a show about high school kids, but it was a show about high school kids aimed at kids younger than high school. Yeah. Imagining yeah. what high school might be like. Yeah. So, <laughs> giant cell phones. What's that? Giant cell phones. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Being able to stop time so that you could talk to the camera and so <laughs> forth. Um, so, okay, but Punky Brewster is a good, uh, colorful answer as always. That's uh, right. So, uh, three hundred and fifty points for uh, for that one. All right, Father Matt. Uh, I would like to know your favorite Old Testament type of Mary. 
out of these two options? Yeah. Is it's it? That's not a this or that question. No, it's not. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Is it the Ark of the Covenant or the Burning Bush? Well, um, I might go with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, I, I like I like the the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, and especially how much of the story of um, the Ark's uh, you know David recovering the Ark and. Leaping before the ark, uh, how much that kind of syncs up typologically with the with the uh, visitation story um, uh, of, of of Mary and Elizabeth? I've always found that kind of an exciting typological connection when it, when it's been laid out to me. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll go I'll go with the the, um, the ark of the covenant. That is a, it's a good answer, um, and uh, everything you said is correct there, and it is beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, the correct answer was Burning Bush, though, so um, I'm afraid I can only award you 15 points. Oh, gosh, okay. Because the Burning Bush thing is amazing. It's so cool, the idea that the Burning Bush is a type of Mary. I love that. So, so could you... How, how how does the burning bush uh, so and this is this this one gets played up a lot more in the east i think the ark of the covenant one gets yeah. played up a lot more in the west um although they have that one in the east too but the idea really is um that anywhere in the old testament basically where you find an example of god in some sense being contained in in something that is not destroyed <laughs> yeah. by it right because almost everything that comes in direct contact with god or anyone is sort of destroyed by that reality and part of the miracle of the incarnation is here is god himself dwelling in the womb of mary you know um and so the burning bush um has that effect because the bush uh, is not consumed, you know, God is speaking from the bush and the bush is not consumed, but also, um, the, there is a, a typology of the sun that connects with that too, because almost anywhere where you see an example of, um, a personification and, and, uh, you know, in, of God there, you also get it, you get a type of Christ. And so there is there's a sense, especially amongst some of the Eastern fathers, that um, that it's Christ who's speaking out of the bush. Yeah. Um, so. It's beautiful. It is. It is. Yeah. Yours was good too. The covenant's totally worth more than fifteen points, and I won't press the point. But I, you know, well. <laughs> you did say it was arbitrary. It is arbitrary. That's Think true. about the cherubim and the Annunciation. Yeah, yeah, that's good too. It's that's good a good too. point. There's nothing wrong with fifteen points. You're only <laughs> mad that it's fifteen because because Father Kyle got three hundred and fifty. That's the only reason why. If he had gotten four, you'd be really excited about your fifteen points. Well, you know. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Elizabeth, you you see how this works now? I do. Okay, so. Um, the one I have for you, so uh, you are uh, Elizabeth Rain Kincaid, right? Mm -hmm. 
Is I've, I've I've never been sure about this. So is is Rain your maiden name? Is it your middle name? It's both. So ah. my baptismal name was Martha Elizabeth Rain, and when I got married, I realized I spell my name with an S. I go by my middle name, and no one ever knows how to spell Kincaid the way we spell. That I spell like Thomas Kincaid, and Rain is like super cool. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm going to make Rain my legal middle name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I'm going to use it because very I love good, it. very good. Well, so your this or that is uh, purple rain, or have you ever seen the rain? Ooh, have you ever seen the rain? Because once you know, as soon as you said it, the tune was in my head, uh-huh. and it is not going to leave my head until you know chapel tomorrow morning. <laughs> so I mean, how can I? How can I deny it? That's a, that's a that's a good uh, solid answer. Um, I will give that uh, six hundred and twelve points. Wow, it's a, a good it's wow. a good answer. Um, <laughs> Poor Father Matt. <laughs> if you'd said Purple Rain, it would have been six hundred and ten points. So mm. you're you're doing pretty well. I actually had the, when I when I thought of this question, it was like I then I had to think of like because all the rain songs I kept thinking of were ones that not everyone would necessarily know. Right. Like I think Patty Griffin's song rain is amazing. I love that song. Ah, see, that's very good. And then the other one I thought of was raining in Baltimore by counting crows, but I wasn't sure. That, so, and then they also have rain King. I was just going to say, ah, yes, yes. Oh, rain, if you see, Google rain Elizabeth King? rain, mm-hmm. E-L-I-S, it pulls up their album because I think Goodnight Elizabeth and Rain King are right next to each other on the album. Oh, it must be like a Greatest Hits album or something. Yeah, I think okay. so. No, it's not August and not everything after. Yeah. Okay. And don't don't forget Led Zeppelin's The Rain song. Yeah. yeah. Right? The Beatles have a song that's just called Rain. Rain. There's See, a lot. how could I let the name go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Okay. So, uh, Father Kyle, back to you for the steal. Um, I don't know if, if any of you have noticed the uh, emergence this week on Amazon Prime of a sequel to Coming to America, the classic Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall film, mm-hmm. the sequel also called Coming to America, but with the number two instead of the right. word two, which right there tells you off the bat what level <laughs> of quality we're shooting for there. Um, but so my question, Father Kyle, to you is... Uh, which fictional African country you want to go with, Zamunda or Wakanda? Oh, I got to go with Wakanda. Um, Wakanda is just such a, a place of high technology, and it's just cool. The Black Panther's there, so that's my answer. That's pretty good. Um, uh, uh, 1,400 points and a ham sandwich. All right. Sounds good. Enjoy the ham sandwich. It's good. I will. It's from a deli, thinly right. sliced. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Father Matt, chance to uh, chance to pull back into the game. Still anybody's game at this point. Uh, gen- genetically modified corn or a '57 Chevy. <laughs> well, I mean. Um... Yeah, you know, I, I, I like my corn organic and um, and, you know, and I like my Chevy's classic. So I'm going to have to say uh, 
the 57 Chevy. Hmm. That is the correct answer to that question. Uh, unfortunately, that question was capped at 15 points. So you get an additional <laughs> 15 points. But okay. excellent, excellent effort. Good hustle, good execution. This is harsh. <laughs> we need to talk about the uh, morality of this or that. That's <laughs> This big this big lad, I, 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 you know, my temper isn't quite as hot as Esau's, Father Esau's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Elizabeth. Not uh, quite as competitive. Do yourself a favor, and he's been on twice. He came on, and, and we talked about Black Panther, and then he came on again, um, I don't know, six months or so ago, and we did an episode that was just this or that. The whole episode was Amazing. this or that. Amazing. And his son uh, came in and guested on one of them, and his son ended up winning the game. And oh. he was so angry about that. <laughs> he just was like, I want to punish my own child and That's steal incredible. this from him. Um, so, um, yeah. So, Fa Father Esau McCulley, um, what, I'm, what I'm saying is basically a terrible person. I'm just... <laughs> Let me just throw that out there. Um, you know, I don't think I'm I don't think anybody's surprised by that revelation, by the way. <laughs> or this or that is just an instrument of corruption. Uh, no, 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 no. It is it is the most above board, you know, perfectly good. But that does actually uh, segue very well into the, the, the question that I wanted to the last this or that that I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, um, and that is prudence or justice. I have to go with prudence because without prudence to properly orient justice, what are you going to have? You're going to have Batman going and trying to hunt down the Joker despite the fact that the Joker is at the UN. Or you're going to have Wonder Woman not even applying the lasso of truth. So you have to start with prudence. It's foundational. And, you know, it grieves my attorney soul to say it. But <laughs> OK, well, so uh, th that's uh, there's a lot of nods uh, happening right now. So there seems to be some some agreement that that was a good answer. I like that answer. Um, uh, but unfortunately, one of the effects of that answer is that I am realizing in a moment of prudence that perhaps it would be just for me to give Father Matt some more points uh, for his answers this evening. And so, uh, Father Matt, uh, uh, Elizabeth, you get uh, 12,000 points for your answer. Uh, but Father Matt, you've just been awarded 1,457,217. And so, uh, Father Matt, congratulations. You are this evening's winner, today's Hello. winner. Wow. Well, not, 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 now I feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you need absolution so you don't That's uh, right. become a... Uh... Right. <laughs> okay. Touched. Okay. Well, um, Elizabeth, it's been, a, it's been a joy having you on the show. Do you, do you have anything you wanted to shout out or any plugs to make or anything like that? Not really. I mean, thank you guys. This has been a blast. Um, I mean, what better thing is there to do than moral reasoning with comic book characters? I mean, so I've, I've loved it. 
Awesome. Well, we'd, we'd love to have you back sometime to, uh, to do it again. Yeah. Um, For sure. Yeah. Great. Great. And thank you too. You know, uh, you've been very helpful to me, uh, personally this year as I've taken on, uh, teaching moral theology. Uh, well, I, you know, any, so. any questions, just shoot, shoot them my way. I always yeah. love to, to share all my thoughts on this. I'm glad it's been helpful. Good. Well, sit there awkwardly for a moment while we close the, the program out. Uh, <laughs> so um, our show is uh, findable through uh, iTunes. You can also find, I'm, I, I should have brought this up, uh, put this up ahead of time. Where, where are we at now? Anchor, right? Uh, so FM, I think is the right thing. If it's not the right thing, uh, you'll be in trouble when you get there. I don't know. Um, but you can still go to godandcomics.com and find out more about us and more about the show and that, that sort of thing. You can still find us through iTunes or whatever your favorite um, uh, uh, service is for getting podcasts. Um, while you are there, if you would give us a rating and a review, we would be most grateful. It helps other people to find the show. Um, our theme music, which uh, if, if Father Matt edits it in at the right moment, hopefully you are banging your head to right this second, uh, is by Elizabeth's uh, colleague, uh, Father Paul Wheatley, who recently announced that he was lifting all restrictions on himself. He is now open to 100% capacity. But he wishes people would stop asking him to remove his mask. That's actually his face. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya. See ya.